Hi everyone, and welcome along to this week's episode of the Think Curiously podcast. If you've never listened before, the way it works is that I invite a different guest on every week, and the topic of conversation is dictated by their interests and their career. As well as their career, we talk about life, the ups and the downs, how to embrace success and overcome adversity, and so much more, all with the aim of using their story to help promote authenticity and to help inspire and motivate others. If you're totally new to the podcast, I recommend that you go back and listen to the first episode where I speak with Lee and Dawn from Carpe Diem Clothing. You can, of course, subscribe for free on Spotify to keep up to date with new releases. And you can also find us on Facebook at the Think Curiously podcast, as well as on Twitter and Instagram. I'd love it if you were able to like, follow, retweet and share across all of our social media platforms to help us extend our reach and to motivate and inspire others to tell their story. So hi Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Gary, thanks very much for uh, for having me on. Brilliant. Uh, Joe, obviously we've had conversations in the past and not none of the listeners will have known this, but talking around the idea of creativity and what it means to you and how you basically live that lifestyle through outside of the, outside of the, the game and inside the game as well and how that has really inspired you to go to the next level and, and educate yourself in many ways mm. uh, in creativity. But we will speak about that as we go throughout the podcast, but mm. just to start us off, why don't you give the listeners a little introduction to who you are? Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks again, Gary. Yeah, so um, I, I probably, as you can tell by my accent, from from England, um, from London, England, actually from Northwest London. So um, for those that are not kind of familiar with with the local area, uh, Wembley Stadium is kind of in the backdrop to, to kind of where I live or where I did live, should I say. Um, and so... Um, my kind of formative years were um, with the backdrop for that, um, and and I grew up on a on a council estate um, kind of adjacent. Actually, the irony was uh, I grew up on a council estate kind of adjacent to uh, the Metropolitan Police Centre. So, um, you know, Metropolitan Police probably the largest you know police force in the United Kingdom and maybe in Western Europe. So, um, you have this kind of paradox of you know. A, a police force that is huge and then you know across the road from that an estate that has the you know the worst crime rate in in Europe or in certainly in the in the UK at that point so um you know in terms of in terms of my experiences they were varied um and and a library of experiences and I, and I grew up there from essentially zero through to my late teens um and you know what, what I had was a real diverse mix of experiences and London being such a cosmopolitan you know city it was it was such a, a melting pot for for cultures. Um, so even on my block, for example, you know, alone I had you know Somalian families, uh, Pakistani families, Filipino families, uh, Nigerian families, Irish. So you know, it was it was in terms of, of from a, a world lens, and my views were always um, were always open. My lenses were always open. So you know, I look back and I appreciate that. Um, and so that those those kind of those libraries experiences served me, I think, well, in terms of my social engagement and being able to mix in, in different groups. And then, you know, as part of that as well, um, you know, it's, it's a, an underserved and low income community. So, you know, community was a big thing. Um, and, you know, it was growing up, I'm, a, I'm an 87 birth. So, you know, growing up, it was coming into that era of, of new age. Um, you know, it was, it was still very much, you know, calling from a phone box. Um, it was still, um, very much a case of um, you know one car families you know um, single parent families 
um, but it was brilliant and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, and you know, those, those kind of, um, those kind of experiences led me into where I believe I am today, which, um, again, I'm extremely grateful for. Yeah. So would you say that having such a mix of cultures, uh, a mix of people in around the state that you lived in, do you think that had a input into eventually the person you would become? So after growing up and leaving the estate, that the experiences you've had in the estate then allowed you to, to basically engage with the world on a better, on a better level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Because it, you, you just have, um, you, you know, and obviously on the subject of creativity, you, you have to, because the experience is so varied, um, you, you have to become a, you know, a quick learner because you're put in situations that are you know, dangerous. You're put in situations that are, um, you know, they challenge you in, in every capacity. So, um, no, absolutely. Those, those, um, those, you know, variety of, uh, experiences were, were, were essential for my, my own personal growth. Um, you know, even from a, from a soccer perspective or a football perspective, um, should I say, um, you know, I, I look at it and say, you know, look what I was exposed to. Um, so, you know, as I said previously, I was an 87 birth and I think the next youngest child on, on my estate was an 85 birth or an, you know, an 84 birth. So, you know, from a social corner perspective, you know, when I was 10 and they were 13, that they, they are, you know, branching out, talking to the opposite sex. They are, um, you know, going into a maturation that I wasn't at. So in order to cope and to survive in that situation, you know, I had to think quickly. Um, and it goes back to my football as well. You know, in, in order to survive in that environment, you know, I was small, I wasn't particularly athletic or quick. So, you know, without knowing, I'm forming this kind of um, ability to survive, um, you know, and in, in terms of if for me to touch the ball in that environment, I have to, my space creation has to be really good. Um, you know, I have to be cute and clever and, um, you know, because it's, it's an environment that's ruthless because you, you know, you know, it's like Gary, if, um, in, in those kind of worlds, if, if you're not up to it, that you'll be told quickly enough and you'll be shunned. So, um, no, in terms of shaping me, it certainly, um, it certainly gave me, um, I think a rounding and a holistic kind of viewpoint of, on, on the world and where I am today. From a young age, if we think back to your soccer career, your football career, going into an academy setup, and we talked there briefly about the input that the cultures and the the other surrounding people and languages potentially you're up, you, you know, you're brought up with. Mm. When you stepped into the world of of football, academy soccer, academy football, were you aware that the lessons and experiences that you've had previously at home were feeding into your to your mm. sport life? Was that something you were, you were knowledgeable of? I, I, I was quite reflective. I'd say I was quite a thinker um, as a child, but I don't think that was something that was, you know, at the forefront of my mind. I think as with most children, you're quite, you know, quite egocentric. So, um, you know, it was always the next thing onto the next thing onto the next thing. So I don't think it was, it was at the forefront of my brain. However, um, I was very, very aware that I was from a, an area of deprivation um, and that, you know, even little things. So, you know, and, and I'm sure I'll get onto this, but I was, I was at Fulham football club for a, for a time and so you know things like when practice finishes between 9 30 and 10 you know me making my way home you know from from west london on the train going into central london on my own um and then back out to northwest london you know and i always had in the back of my mind that i could deal with that because of my exposure to what i'd been exposed to from the estate 
Um, and, and I will say that the estate was full of love. Don't get me wrong. Um, there's some fantastic people and I was very, very fortunate to have an incredible family support network of brothers, sisters, you know, a mum and, and cousins. No, I don't think I knew at the time, particularly that, you know, it was, it was having such an impact on my, on my development. And your coaches that you worked with at a very young age, then if you were the type of player, like you said, who had low center of gravity, who was looking to find those little minute moments of opportunity, space creation for yourself and for mm-hmm. others, were your coaches at that age promoting that kind of mindset? And was that then adding to that part of your development? Um, so I was, I was very, very fortunate as well that I had, um, at the time, what would be being progressive coaches. Um, so for people that are listening, maybe um, Paul Clement was what, was my coach at Fulham. So Paul Clement obviously went on and coached with you know Carlo Angelotti at Chelsea. Um, he went in at Real Madrid with him and PSG and, and Bayern. And Paul was a was a part time PE teacher, I believe, at the time. So he had an education background. So at those at that time, you know, he would have been deemed quite progressive. Um, and, and gone on to do amazing things in the game. I think, think something that sticks with me even to this day, and I think about it often, is um, we we played a game against Tottenham. I think it was U14, and Bradley Hudson Adoy, who's who's the brother of Callum, um, he was in my age group. And Bradley scored arguably one of the best goals I've ever seen. It was like the Ronaldo um, overhead kick against Juventus for Real Madrid a couple of years ago. It was very very similar, and randomly. Um, a couple of sessions later, Bradley had tried it a number of times after. And I was stood next to Paul during a session and Bradley had tried it and kind of under his breath, Paul had said more or less to the, the words, the effect of, my God, if he tries that again, I'm going to lose my, you know, such and such. In my head then, I was, I was disappointed with that because, you know, I'd come from a setting where expression, you know, I was quite a, stri- a shy kid. Um, I was very, very shy. So expression, the way I expressed myself was on the football field. And I always felt in an academy setting that was always stifled, whether that be through restriction, whether that be through shame, um, you know, maybe giving the ball away and then being and being dragged off or uh, publicly humiliated, whether that be trying something and then coach saying, you know, I've told you before, you know, you play simple or, you know, I've told you before we do that first time. So, you know, those those experiences I had was having in a formal academy setting, completely the opposite to what I was having, you know, around the estate and on the street where, you know, expression was celebrated. I just want to pick up on something you said there, because I think it's, it's quite appropriate to what we've seen recently with the Fulham say, was it the penalty uh, Lukman? Yes. Panenka, yeah. Um, yes. Well, you yeah. said there, obviously Clement had made the comment about the young lad trying to do the overhead kick. What is What would your perspective be of the Lukman incident? Do you, do you think that's creativity? Would you applaud that yeah. as a coach or would you be kind of going, yeah. you know what, stop that? It's such a good question, Gary. Again, um, so funny because my brother, he sent me a voice note um, and he said, I know we're going to disagree here. And it was so interesting. My brother's 15 years older than me. And so, you know, he has a completely different lens and worldview to me. I think what he, his view of, of my, of my um, principles and how my values of the world, he considers that fluffy. He doesn't, he doesn't adhere to that. So his view was it was a selfish act and, you know, he's thinking about himself. My view is I'm celebrating that. Now, I'm not Scott Parker. I'm not a Premier League manager and I I probably never will be. So it's very, very difficult for me to put myself in the shoes of Scott Parker as he comes out after the game and says, you know, that's not acceptable. Jobs are on the line, you know, etc. But in my head, you know, if a child tries that on a Sunday, I'm, you know, I'm applauding it. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely applauding it. And I'll make sure the child knows that I'm applauding that because I look at that from a viewpoint that, 
Um, if we're looking at it from a statistic standpoint, people that try Penenka's, you know, nine times out of 10, they work. And the fact that he's done that in the last minute would suggest to me that the goalkeeper may not even think that he's, gonna, he's got that in his locker. So um, I'm celebrating that. Yeah, I think you make a good point there. The context is key, isn't it? You know, mm. you, we, you work obviously at a youth level, I'm at 18s level, and the context of the situation is massive in that moment. We have a player at 18s who can do some phenomenal stuff with the ball to the point you don't actually know what he's going to do with him anyways. <laughs> yeah. And you, you kind of, you know, the, the back of your mind, you're thinking, just keep it simple. Just keep it simple. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he does something and you go, wow. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't be thinking that way. But it's it's very difficult sometimes to to rein yourself in and just allow mm. them to be and allow them yeah. to play the moment and as they see it. Because mm. I think we as as adults and maybe it's because of experience, could be because of background as well. Many of us have a certain understanding of what creativity looks like and where creativity mm. can happen. So, for example, you hear it all the time. You know, don't be doing Cruyff turns inside your own box. Mm. Step over inside your own box. But then the next question also becomes, well, why not? You know mm. what I mean? So if, if it's the right moment, if it's the right time, he's got the right conditions to perform the skill in order to allow him to be successful or her to be successful, then there's no issue, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that, that's my, I guess that's my gripe with, with what people's viewpoint of creativity is. You know, for me, creativity is solving problems. So, you know, I, I look at, you know, for a country like the Netherlands, for example, you know, essentially that's, that's a country, Gary, that should be underwater. And in order to stay afloat, you know, they've had to be really innovative and really creative to solve that problem. And it's similar on a football field. For me, it's no different. I think there's this, this narrow-minded view, if you like, or want a expression of creativity is, is a twirly number 10 or it's um, a step over or scissor. When for me, it's so much more. And I think uh, why creativity is stifled is because from an adult's perspective, ego is, is a huge blocker. It's a blocker of intent. And so... You know, for example, I work in a pay-to-play model in the United States, which is very controversial, um, and I completely understand why. From, as from, from someone who was from a underserved community, who, without the vehicle of, of soccer and, and being free, I would likely be in a different world. So I completely understand that. But what comes with that is a justification of your salary. So coaches, you know, deem themselves accountable to parents, which is understandable. And in order to be accountable, they need to be seen to be coaching. And for me, the, the majority of the time, player doesn't need to be coached. Sometimes it's just the environment. And then your coaching is done in ghost moments. It's done when they're grabbing a drink. It's done, you know, when they're walking off the field. It's done, you know, silently. Um, and, it's, and it's not done, you know, as a show for, for you know, viewers. I'm a massive believer in that. The, the adults, normally an adult will curb creativity or stifle creativity due to experiences they've had as a player or as a, as a child. The, the, the thing I hear constantly is, and I've been on courses and I've been around you know, very well-read individuals and you know, people that have unbelievable views on the game. And they say, oh, I love creativity. No one loves creativity more than me. But when you break it down, when it's rainy on a November evening or it's freezing cold and you've traveled three hours and you've lost five nil, it then becomes the last thing that you're interested in. And I always remind myself of that, that it always be priority because that's, that's the way I live my life. It actually brings in to the discussion quite an interesting TED Talk, which uh, I'm sure you've watched. And if listeners haven't watched it, I would, would definitely advise doing so, was the, the TED Talk by Sir Ken Robinson. Uh, I actually believe it's now the most watched TED Talk ever. 
I believe it is. Um, is it 20 plus million, Gary? Yeah. Something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Crazy, crazy mm-hmm. numbers. It's entitled do skill, do, do schools really kill creativity and just picking up on a few points, what you said there in terms of could potentially be the adults that stifle the creativity. He makes a really mm-hmm. interesting point. He says that we don't grow into creativity. We grow out of it or otherwise we're actually educated out of it in many ways. Would you, would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, I'm, by the way, I'm obsessed with Sir Ken Robinson. I was actually watching a, one of his TED Talks last night, but, you know, he talks a lot on divergent thinking. Um, so, you know, essentially a, an essential capacity for creativity and, and to think not just in a, in a linear way. And he's massive on, on that, you know, the thing that our education is built on, on factory settings, you know. So, you know, he even says a child's date of birth is almost like a, a child date of manufacture. You know, he really brings it back to, you know, the age of industrialization, you know, Victorian times, essentially. So um, I, I'm a massive believer in, in that quote, because I do believe that, you know, young players and young people, um, and not just players, because the, the person is, is far more important, are capable of so much. Um, but due to the environment, we, we place as adults on, on young people. I think we stifle them, and I don't even think we realise we're doing it. You know, one of the things that, you know, Sir Ken Robinson talks about is, you know, we educate children by age, you know, and it's, and it happens in football clubs as well. So, you know, you, you might have an 08 or an, I take a, a very, very gifted 09 group. Um, I would, I would say maybe one of the best in the country. And, but what we do is we, we hopefully serve them in, in a multitude of ways by playing them up sometimes down because their age group, because, you know, the, in, each individual needs different things at different, at different ages. And in the school system is this, this kind of, a system based on you know conformity and, and and linearity really and a kind of a preconceived notion that you know this is what education looks like and you know an, an academic ideology you know that some subjects are more important than others you know you know it's like at the moment in a pandemic you know in terms of the arts the first thing to go in, in a curriculum is the arts um, and, and I would argue and I would argue it should be the last thing to go particularly when when a child is you know in, in a position they are now um, I've been so inspired by the children that we coach at the club because I think that they've been an example to the adults, um, how they've dealt with the time. And again, you know, something I, I even heard Sir Ken talk about last night was, you know, it's this almost production line mentality of conformity. And I, I sometimes, you know, I always have to remind myself and, you know, even when at the moment with the social distancing and the kids lining up outside, again, it's almost uh, as they're kind of entering our sessions is, is try not to make it, you know, a factory you know, where we put them in straight lines, you're, you're, you're blowing a whistle to bring them in. You know, you have them, you know, yes, coach, no coach. And I'm, I'm always very, very aware of that. Or I try to be. And so, yeah, no, he, I, I do a lot of, of reading on, on Sir Ken Robinson and I've read a couple of his books. Um, Finding Your Element was big for me and, and Creative Schools. And yeah, I'm a massive believer in that quote. Uh, well, so there's a quote he also makes that, that I like as well. He sort of talks about the myths of creativity. Yes, and he talks. You know that the myth is, or one myth is, that only special people are creative. You're born creative. You know you can't be taught how to be creative. Uh, and one is that maybe there is an uninhibited ability to allow yourself to be self-expressive. And, and what I find interesting about that part of the quote is that potentially there are players out there, coaches, teachers. You know, no matter what walk of life you, you're in, where you have an idea that you potentially think could make your situation better, the company better, the classroom better, the team mm. better. But there's a fear of self-exploration because it might stand mm. outside of the social norm. And you don't want to be seen as that person who breaks that social norm because mm. you don't believe 
fully in yourself mm. or you don't fully believe that the people you're going to be speaking to will be receptive of your mm. opinion or ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I think Definitely. that would be a big part mm. of, of a lot of the reasons why a lot of people don't maybe step outside and, and do you know, do their own thing, be themselves in many ways. Oh, definitely. It's, it's definitely ingrained in our culture. I think particularly in the, in, in the Western world, I definitely believe. I think anyone that puts their head above the parapet, certainly for the initial period, is, um, you know, is, is, there's that kind of um, that shame, that, that humiliation, because it makes the, the person who's humiliating feel better. Um, yeah. And I think that's definitely part of it. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it Bielsa that said um, the, mad, the, ma- the man is mad until his ideas are proven or something along those lines? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I was at a Bielsa conference, Gary, in 2013 where, where people were laughing um, at somebody. I did, he wasn't there. It was someone presenting on him. Uh-huh. And I left the room and people were shaking their heads saying, this is, this is embarrassing. You know, fast forward seven years and, you know, people are reenacting what he's doing. Um, so, no, I, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. But what would you say then have been some of the obstacles that you've came up against? And it could be in your playing career, it could be in your coaching mm. career, or even in life where uh, you have tried to, I suppose, promote this idea of creativity, individuality, thinking for yourself, mm. being authentic in many ways. What, what kind of roadblocks have you came to and how have you overcome? Thank, yeah, yeah. I, I think um, it, I, I face so many. Um, so, you know, you, in, in youth soccer, particularly in, um, in the UK, you know, you, you're dealing with such a, a regressive, uh, and, and maybe that's unfair now because I think um, the FA have done a really, really good job in the last 10 years. Um, people like Pete Sturgis and Dan Machichu, I'll talk about after. I've done a really, really good job. But, you know, even I, I've been approached by parents after games and, and been accused of, of not doing my job in terms of, you know, I had in Boston, I worked in Boston for two years and um, I had a situation where, I think I was taking a, an 07 uh, girls team and um, they played really, really well, actually. They did really, really well. And um, after the game, a, a parent uh, very kindly came up to me and said, you know, can I have a word with you? And I said, yeah, absolutely, no problem. Um, and she said, oh, we're a bit concerned as a, as a parent group. We, we don't think you're coaching. And I said, oh, could, could you just explain what you mean? She was like, well, you weren't, you weren't shouting or screaming and you weren't directing. And then, you know, kind of we've had this you know, deeper conversation and, what I took away from it is, is my preparation for that wasn't good enough. You know, what I didn't understand was I'd come into a culture where, you know, leading from the back, unconditional support, mistakes-led environment, um, and celebrating kind of bits of individual, individual, excuse me, individual skill was, um, you know, was, was not explained to people. And so, you know, you, you're in a culture where, you know, winners are everything in America. And it's something I really admire about the country. So, you know, people want to see that replicated at a youth level. So the roadblocks I've had have, have been around, you know, people not understanding. And that's probably been my fault um, on, on reflection, not explaining myself well enough, you know, not doing enough parent engagement, you know, those kind of things. And also, also working in, in, in a male-dominated environment, you know, it's very egocentric. So, you know, the, f- the first thing you'll hear when I used to work in Boston on a Monday was, what was the score? How did you get on? And, you know, I was laughed out of the room a number of times when I, when I refused to say the score, um, whether we'd won or lost, because to me, that didn't tell me nothing. Um, that didn't tell me, you know, how the, the players played, who were the best individuals, um, who was striving, who was struggling. You know, it was, it was almost uh, a masculinity to, to the question. So, you know, you, I've had to deal with all of that. What, what kept me strong through that period was, you know, when I worked in England, I, I was very, very fortunate to... Um, 
to work very, very briefly with a gentleman called Dan Machici. I know you know of Gary. And Dan was the head of coach at MK Dons. And I'd kind of come across Dan by kind of, it was an accident, really. I'd just started my coaching and um, I'd brought a team up to play MK Dons, which I was even surprised that he had, he'd agreed to the, to the friendly and we played them. And without knowing, he was actually toying with me. I think at the time I was, again, I was in the world of, you know, results. And I think, and that was the, the, the hallmark of development. And we had won the game, I think. And without, again, without me knowing, he had, he had kind of, um, he had been toying with me on the sideline. Um, he was playing players in foreign positions. He was making players use, you know, certain feet. Um, he had constraints all over the field. And so that always stuck with me whenever, you know, um, a roadblock had come in the way, which, you know, again, in, a, in a, an environment where winning matters, um, to a lot of people in this culture, you know, you have to be really resilient and resourceful to get through that. What I really admire about that, and Sergio, is you had such a, a level of self-awareness in the in the point you made there about the parents coming to you at the end of the game mm. and sort of saying, "Listen, we don't think you're coaching because it's mainly not what our perception of a coach is." But mm. you could very easily have just closed up shop and said, "You know what? I'm right. You're wrong. I'm getting paid to mm. do this. I'm the coach." No, you sit yeah. back down and have your place, but you had such a level of self-awareness to go, you know what, maybe it was actually me and, and what I had lacked in preparation. I didn't educate them on my coaching style. Uh, when, mm. I, when I was or what I could potentially have done through that coach education is let them know what my understanding of coaching is. And then potentially from off, off of that, it could have been, you know, when the boys go to play or the girls go to play, here are the, the expectations and here's what I want to see. So it mm. aligns kind of your philosophy with the parents' expectations of what, the, what they're going to see on a Saturday or a Sunday or whenever they play. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that level of self-awareness could potentially have came from your upbringing where you talk yeah. about the difference of cultures. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I was, I, I was exposed to such, such a, a um, diverse community that I think you, you, you naturally adapt to being exposed to so many different things. Um, you almost become this almost social chameleon, you know. Although I can be stuck, you know, I, the people I work, I'm very, very blessed with the people I work with and the staff. I'd like to think that I was re- reflective. I can also be stubborn in my views, but it's always a, there's always a stubbornness with a reason because I have seen it work. To that conversation in in Boston with the parent, you know, it's really difficult when you're when you're explaining um, a viewpoint that someone hasn't potentially heard of, and you're talking about skillful neglect. And you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for a reason. It, it's kind of almost skillful neglect. You're, you're allowing the child to, to navigate through that situation and, and I will help them, but you may not see it. I mean, it may be for a rule. It might be through a constraint. And that's not to say that um, there isn't a time for more direct instruction. But from my experience, you know, in order to foster and what I deem really, really important, which is creativity, you know, you have to, you have to be, you have to lead from the back and you have to be, really really intentional with your instruction um, and, and honestly as an adult and someone that's in control of a number of people is very very difficult when you have to understand that less is more so yeah no I, I would definitely agree that my experiences growing up allowed me to allow me to be reflective hopefully and um in order to take on other people's points of view two big points i'm just going to draw out of that one before we close off that part of the conversation mm-hmm was you mentioned the idea of uh, a mistakes-led environment or a mistakes-led mm. approach, which is something mm. I haven't heard before. I've heard a constraint-led yeah. approach before, but not that mistake. And I understand mm. what you mean. Also, the skill, the idea of skillful neglect. Skillful neglect mm. is a term I've heard before, but I've never seen it um, being used. So I've never mm. been with a coach who's been able to explain to me what skillful neglect is. So 
Mm. I thank you for that because <laughs> that's a question I, you know, I didn't know I was going to have to ask, but what I now yeah. understand what that means. But because in many ways, if we are promoting, or as you say, if you're promoting in your club and for your coaches as well to be creative, and then at some stage mm. there are going to be mistakes, and the mistakes mm. then have to lead the learning, and you absolutely. have to be comfortable with that, surely. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's the thing I think with creativity, Gary, that people potentially miss the point of is it's it's not a nice process. It's a painful process. Believe me, like, believe me, I've been through it. Our early part of the year in in Oregon, where I'm based, you know, we we have teams come in the club in you know May. It's talking about creativity in May when the weather in the northwest of the country is beautiful. You know, the sun is beaming, the hills are shining, and you know you're almost preaching to the converted. You know, you 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 really are. But then come November and December and the dark days, when things aren't necessarily going to plan, are you brave enough to stick with it? It's a messy process. And I, and I say that to, to parents in, in session. Session design, again, I've had parents approach me when I first came here. You know, we had sessions where we had you know, four teams going across each other, no pinnies or no bibs, should I say, and, um, and no one talking. And, you know, a parent has come up to me after and said, that's actually dangerous. And, you know, I've, I've done that game for five years and I've never seen one player injured from it. So it's just the perception of that um, and, and being able to engage with that and understand that in order to get out what we want and, and, and to get creative returns, it has to be messy. Because if it's too linear, if it's too structured, going back to Sir Ken Robinson, if it's conformity and it looks nice, then it probably isn't going to get the returns we want and, and what the player needs. So that's something that I've, you know, I've learned over, over the time. Just want to pick up as well on a conversation that we had at the start of the week. I think it might have been over mm. WhatsApp because I think it's a really good time to put that in there. Is we, we spoke about understanding what creativity means as an individual because mm. you, know, you can go on to the online dictionaries and you can find the definition of what creativity is, but that's somebody else defining creativity. That's not you as an individual defining what creativity is. Mm. So... If you link that with the, the reflections that you had from that conversation with the parent group, mm. when you're actually speaking to um, a parent group or a group of players, it's really understanding you as a person, understanding what you believe creativity is, but also understanding that others will have their own view and their own understanding of what mm. it looks like. And yes. W- would you say then, from it doesn't make a difference if it's a, a coach or a manager in any kind mm. of setting, do they have to understand then what the perception or understanding is from each of those individuals that they're working with and what their understanding of, of creativity is? Yeah. And that's, again, that's something I've done probably a poor job with because uh, on reflection, actually, I had, and, and to our conversation we had at the start of the, of the week, Gary, and I had um, a conversation with, with a parent regarding the player and, and she was brilliant. She messaged me and said, you know, um, I've, got, I've got something to tell you. And I said, oh yeah, sure. The, the parent said, oh, how did you get on this evening? And the child said, no one ever passes the ball. And uh, as soon as I read it, my heart dropped. So, okay. And then the parents said, well, what, is, what did Joe say? And then the child said, well, he wants us to be creative. And um, what really struck home to me was, was each person's perception of, of creativity is different. And I potentially hadn't done a good enough job of explaining it to that individual because creativity isn't, as I alluded to at the start, it isn't being a twirly number 10 necessarily. It isn't about beating five or six players. But this child, due to my lack of explaining, now believes that it's essentially um, an opportunity to run with the ball and, and not lend it. So that really hit home for me in terms of my explanation. 
um, and it looks completely different to different to different people. So, and I think due to the pandemic and due to a place the place we are in in kind of history at the minute, you know, I haven't done a good enough job with that because it's been more a case of you know get them in, you know, entertain, um, make sure that they're forgetting about what's going on in, in the outside world and outside world and you know off the zooms. But it definitely looks different to different people, and and making sure that staff, players, parents understand that is is um, paramount in terms of the success of it. It, it reminds me of, of an idea I came across uh, a few months back, actually during lockdown, was this idea of affordances. And I think mm. we, we spoke about it a little bit over WhatsApp. The idea that each individual perceive a problem differently and their solution obviously will be different based upon how they uh, think through that, that problem. So, for example, in a footballing perspective and what, what was given to me and which made the, the idea really clear in my mind was that in a game, if Iniesta has the ball and Iniesta sees mm. a gap, between two players, NES's affordance is probably going to be to try and find a pass through it. Whereas if it was Messi on the ball, Messi's affordance is, well, I'm going to try and dribble through it, potentially. So it's yes. like, you know, in that moment in time, the fact that Messi has dribbled through that gap, people may perceive that as being creative and being individualistic and doing something out of the norm. The pass by NES that probably wouldn't get the same amount of support. It probably wouldn't get no. the same amount of furore as what a dribbler would do passing uh, playing through two players. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And that's often when you hear when you hear about creative players, you always hear about attacking players. And me and me and one of um, the club partners, uh, directors, uh, Ricky Michelle, and um, one of the other directors, Dan Ferguson, we talk often about someone like Rio Ferdinand. You know, his he was his ability to bring the ball down in the early two thousands on his chest and then drive into midfield with the ball was creative. It just didn't get the plaudits maybe that someone like Cristiano Ronaldo would get because yeah. he's done something very, you know, you know, very skillful. No, I completely agree. It's the affordances to each individual. I was listening to the High Performance podcast by Jack Humphreys. And mm. The first episode of that podcast on the first series is Real Ferdinand. There's, there's a number of different episodes. I think they're maybe in season three now. But Real Ferdinand was the one that really hit home. He, he, he mentions that he was 11 or 12 and he used to get his backpack ready and walk through the state and his friends would be around the streets and they'd be asking him where he was going and yes. he'd, he'd be telling him he's going X, Y and Z. But in actual fact, he's going to do ballet. Yeah, I had the same thing. I didn't do ballet, Gary, though. Uh, <laughs> but like no, you've seen that. <laughs> no, my, my, twin, my twins, I've got a twin sister and so she would do Irish dancing and sometimes if my mum didn't want to leave me at home on my own, she'd say, you have to come with us. So I'm having to explain to the boys on the estate as I'm walking past them, where are you going? where you going Smith type thing um oh no I'm just I'm just going out well where you know are we going Irish dance and oh you know so yeah I, when when I actually listened to that that part of the podcast and it actually resonated with me absolutely <laughs> I have to see those uh toe taps and whatever else going <laughs> pretty soon uh, uh, well, actually, yeah quite interestingly I'm, I'm speaking to Keith Beatty on Thursday night um uh, Keith was an ex-ballroom um, dancer professional ex-ballroom dancer right. uh, played football and he, he's now a, an academy head coach Mm. And I'm not too sure what he would say in terms of how his skill set would have transpired from the ballroom uh, onto the, the, the football pitch. But mm. certainly, Rio Ferdinand in that moment does a credit to the fact that throughout his career, he was talked about as being a ball playing centre-back, being light on his feet, being agile, being flexible, being, being able to move and cover distances. A lot of that sort of pose and grace and balance mm. could have potentially come from ballet and maybe he wouldn't have had that if he hadn't have done that. And when you bring that back to this idea of creativity, that, that's really thinking outside the box in many ways. Yeah. You know, at the club, we, we encourage multi-sport 
Um, we believe it, it rounds the player. At the club, we're, we're big on knowing everyone's name um, and everyone's journey. And why, why we do that is, is for a couple of reasons. But the main reason is um, we find out about the individual and it allows us to, to hopefully hone in on, on how we can get them to be creative. So, you know, one of the, one of the kids recently told me, oh, I was doing art today which I love. And that's all, you know, tell me more type thing. So, you know, I, I like that because, um, you know, it's another outlet for an expression. I think one of the things with, so Ken Robinson, Gary as well, just to go back to him quickly, was one of the things that stuck with me in, in some of his talks was he talked about, you know, Sir Paul McCartney hating music at school, you know, not ever being identified by his teacher as someone that was, was gifted and talented. Even stories about Elvis wasn't even allowed in the Glee Club. Um, where he grew up and and you know even quotes by like Steven Spielberg in terms of don't you know don't judge my films you know by the end product judge it by the you know my cutting room floor so I, I always go back to things like that and um and I always try and remind myself that you know there is a process to it and um you know it's it's really really important that you know we buy into that process yeah for sure because you you never know what could potentially be lurking beneath the surface yeah no it's like almost um natural resources that you know they're buried beneath the surface aren't they when yeah. i think human human resources are the same um i think it's exactly the same absolutely it, it kind of falls in line with something and an idea that i have been toying with probably since my i turned 30 that's three years ago and i spoke with a, about it last week uh, on the podcast with john it's this idea of authenticity the more that i think about it the more I research about it that i realize that authenticity comes from not being scared to express yourself, not being scared to stand mm. out and do what you want to do and feel comfortable with. I mean, I'm doing this podcast. I'm not saying I'm any kind of saint or I'm a, a shining light or <laughs> whatever whatever it is, but yeah. you know, it takes you outside your comfort zone, kind of puts you in the shop window for criticism in many ways. You have to be resourceful and you have to be resilient. It's part of it. You know, you, you absolutely will go through pain and, and it's about just, you know, getting out of your comfort zone because I think then out of there, you can, something really, really special can be created, you know? As you talked about getting outside your comfort zone, I think that's the hardest part of understanding what you believe creativity to be. Because mm. it's very easy to understand what creativity is, keep it in, not do nothing about it, write it, have a conversation about it potentially, but not actually take the, the action that's needed to show the world, that, you know mm. what, here's what I believe it to be. And I actually, I read a book, now I'm trying to think where I read the quote, I think it might have been in a Malcolm Gladwell book, around mm. my 30th birthday and it was from uh, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche mm -hmm. and he said that the surest way to corrupt the youth is to instruct him to hold in higher regard those who mm -hmm. think alike than those who think differently. Mm -hmm. My journey of, of understanding what authenticity is and how sort of being comfortable in, in, in trying to be me in many ways, that quote yeah. always sticks in the back of my mind because there may be things that I do on the football pitch that might seem out of out of the ordinary. I'll give you an example. We were doing a phase of play and we were looking at pressing in the midfield third. So I funneled the pitch off so that all the play, the attacking team could only play through the middle third. So it forced mm. the defensive team then to get narrow and to get compact. And one of the strikers said, well, why is the pitch? What, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. This doesn't look like a really, really game of football. Why is the pitch narrowed off like this? And it made me think for a second because he did say it doesn't look like football. And I went, Right, there's me trying to be think outside the box, do something completely different. <laughs> but it hasn't resonated with him. Yeah. So then mm -hmm. I, after the, the water break, I had a chat with him and I said, listen, the reason why I have constructed it like this is to try and force the play through here so that we can work on our defensive shape in the midfield third. Yeah. More often than it would be if I opened the pitch up and just let everybody everybody play without conditions. 
and he, I think he then yeah. he realised what what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, mm-hmm. he'd never been involved in that type of situation before. Yeah, and, and by the way, I've had that. One thing we're big on at the club, Gary, is is being very open and honest with the children prior to a session. So you know, if I'm trying something new with with a with a group, you know, I I will be very honest and say, listen, guys, I, you know, we're asking you to be creative. We're asking you to be risk takers. You know, outliers. We're asking you to you know, try things all over the field with, you know, without any consequence, just so you know, you know, I'm, I'm buying into that process with you. I'm trying something this evening. It might not work, but I just want you to know that I'm going to try something um, and I'd love you to go with it with me. And I think showing you're vulnerable is really, really important. Of course, there's a line because, you know, what you don't want is your authority taken because sometimes if it's, that's not explained well enough, that can happen. Not that that's happened previous per se, but I can see how that could happen. So it's really, really important as a trust there. And I think the, ch- the children appreciate it. It's always really, really important to be to be vulnerable in those situations because in order to bring out what you want, you've got to show them, the kids, that you're willing to make mistakes as well. Indeed, that, that idea of vulnerability, is, I think, is mm. so important. Uh, and understanding that when you do try to step outside the box and when you do almost hand the power over in many ways to the player yes. because you, you, know, you want to promote that creativity in them, so you don't want to be joystick coaching in many ways. You have to mm. hand them, you have to give them some kind of power so, and... and an ability to make their own decisions. And that can be, as you say, getting comfortable with, I suppose, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable in many ways. The conversation uh, so far has just been as engrossing as, as I thought it would. So uh, okay, I pr- no appreciate, appreciate that. Um, just before we, we finish off, yeah. I, I want to catch up just on how you promote creativity to yeah. others uh, in, in positions where they are now affecting uh, kids and, 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 and parents alike. Yeah, no. Um, so I'm, I'm currently a technical director for a club in Portland, Oregon. I'm really, really blessed to be in the position. We, we work really, really hard, you know, um, as a library staff and as parents um, within the club. We have 200 children in the club now, um, which we've been kind of um, here since March 2019. Um, I came across in April 2019. And so, you know, the club started from scratch. You know, we don't want to be a big club. And we have no interest in being a, a big club because I think then you lose a grip on individuals. And as I said, it's really, really important to us and to the staff that we continue to know every player, you know, every parent um, and what makes those, those, you know, those people tick. We get creative, you know, through various, through various ways. You know, what we'll do a lot of is small-sided games. We'll do uh, mixed genders, mixed ages. So we have a small-sided games evening. We, we actually don't have it at the moment just due to the, where we're at in terms of the pandemic. In, in Oregon currently, you can only have a capacity of 50 people at one facility. But, you know, primarily, we, you know, we would do small-sided games, um, you know, with goals facing backwards, different size fills. So back to my, my environment growing up, different surfaces, different pitch sizes, you know, one minute I was running, running out of the house playing a 3v3, the next I'm playing heads and volleys, the next minute I'm in quickly and then the next minute I'm hitting the ball against the wall. So what we've tried to do as a club is, is kind of reenact a, a street football environment but within an organised setting. So it, I'd guess you'd deem it, Gary, as an organised chaos setting. So loads of small-sided games. We won't tread the traditional path. You know, we're massive believers in that. We don't have to have a curriculum, so we don't follow curriculum. My, my issue with curriculum has always been that, you know, I, I could write a program. I've done it before. I've written a program for, you know, six months, nine months. But there's no way in me knowing where that player is in their journey. So I can write, you know, as I say, we start in May. And I can say, well, okay, in May, we're doing, you know, building that from the back. 
Um, oh, and then, you know, in the second week of November, we're doing playing through midfield. I don't know where individual, each individual group's going to be. You know, they might need something different. So what we do is we have a very fluid, evolving program. Um, it's, it's kind of characterized by principles. You know, it's, um, it's underpinned by the players being able to try things, be expressive, you know, play with loads of freedom. And then there's, there's principles within that. So within those small-sided games, where a session might be started is we might start with a 2v2 or 3v3. Then we might go into a little bit of technical refinement and then we might head back into a small-sided game. Um, or, you know, I'm a massive believer in children are motivated by variety and change and difference. So, you know, if we started that way on a Monday, on the Wednesday, we might start, you know, with some technical refinement and then go into a game, then back in technical refinement. It's constantly giving them problems to solve, you know, whether that be in a, a technical setting or, you know, or in an opposed setting, a lot of our practices are opposed. So they're under pressure. Again, it goes back to, you know, dealing with problems. And, you know, a key characteristic of the club is, is 1v1 domination. We want players to be able to be comfortable um, in all areas of the field. Um, and so we promote, you know, 1v1 domination, you know, back facing, uh, back to goal, you know, forward, diagonal, side by side. So in order in order for us to do that, we we, we do make our sessions like a playground. You know, yeah. so there will be kids and balls flying everywhere. Um, there will be, you know, the same color shirts. There will be a messy process, um, but that's how we that's how we bring our creative outcomes out. And how would you say then, as a technical director, do you recruit staff in order to understand mm. that that is the ethos of the club and that's how you want mm. them to behave? Because I, I listened recently to the High Performance yeah. Podcast again, and Eddie Hearn was on it. Fascinating listening, as you can imagine, he's a character, but he talks about <laughs> the idea of what how his company go go about employing staff and he's not a massive mm. fan of interviews and he says pretty much from the first five seconds I can tell you whether I'm going to employ you or not all I need to know is just the the technical details if you're qualified because mm. I can see the passion and the enthusiasm and the hunger in the eyes and, and what I find absolutely fascinating about um, his story and his company's story he is he says that we have not yet ever recruited from outside the company for senior management positions Every mm -hmm. person in a senior management position has come through the company in some respect. So mm. they haven't went and looked for a CEO or a senior manager mm. or whatever it is. They promote it from within because mm. he talks about getting that love connection. He, he's massive on the connection part of it. So how, how, how would the club go about or how would you go about potentially getting somebody through the door that you, you know or at least you have an mm. understanding that they will be able to uh, encapsulate what it is the club want? Yeah, so I think the, thing, the first thing is um, we, we're not interested in qualifications, which probably if you're a parent in my club or in the club hearing this or an outside parent hearing this, you're probably like, well, hang on, these guys don't have a curriculum. <laughs> they, don't, they don't employ coaches with qualifications. That's, that's um, in short, you'd probably my Lord, where, what are these kids doing? But there is, a, there is a rationale behind it because we believe in the character piece first because you know my ideal world is coach comes to us without any qualifications because then you have a blank canvas. And you can mould that coach, you know, the way you want it. So that's not to say that our coaches don't have qualifications. They do. But some of them come from, you know, doing um, very minimal. Um, so the character part is the most important because, you know, similarly to my environment, you know, the social corner is really, really big for us. Um, and the investment in the individual is more than what a coach can give for instructions and the X's and O's. So obviously along the way, you'll make mistakes. There'll be people that that want to believe in the process. However, you know, it becomes a bit painful for them, you know, particularly, as I said, you're losing a lot of games and, 
you know, parents are asking questions about, do you actually know what you're doing? And, you know, so you, you are naturally going to lose that because a lot of people haven't been subjected to that environment, you know, or they, they say that they're going to be in that environment. And then, you know, the, the technical director or the director of coaching or, you know, whether that be an outside business or whatever, they might change their, their lens, you know, when it, things aren't going well, where we're, we're very stubborn with it. Uh, we're reflective, but we're stubborn. So what we'll do is, you know, it's a funny, funny story. We actually had a new member of staff come in in the last couple of weeks. So what, what we'll do is we won't have them actually coach for the first week or two. But yeah, so we'll have them out observing. And then it's just deep conversations. I, necess- I don't necessarily see, need to see them coach because, as I said, um, the character part is the most important. And then from there, we can guide. Yeah, the character part, I think, that you've talked about there, uh, you've, you've needed yeah. the character piece, that, the, that, that part yeah. of it. I think is massively important because as you said, you can get blinded in many ways by the qualification, potentially mm. even by the experience and the names and the CV. But if that yeah. person isn't flexible enough, isn't willing enough to be able to see a different perspective, a different point of view, as you said, many experienced coaches could walk into that situation and you've said to them, you know what, you're not coaching for the next two weeks, you're just observing and they're going to turn around mm. and say, well, hold on a minute. I've just spent the last yeah. 25 years and I've got an A license. And yeah. I've, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. the, the yeah. character part, and I can see and I can understand that. And mm. I want to just slightly um, to go off on a little tangent here, if, yeah. if you allow me just with um, the totally. work of yeah. Matthew Syed and, and yes. Rebel Ideas, a phenomenal mm. book. I read it during, during lockdown and it's a really, really good read, this whole idea of cognitive diversity. Because mm-hmm. what you're trying to do, I, perce- I perceive, is build up a library of staff who... They do buy into what you're trying to do. They, they buy into mm. the principles of the club, the foundations of the club. But then you also want them to have that ability and individuality to be creative. Absolutely. So yeah. that, that's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, work along this semi-structure in many ways. But basically, we, we believe in you enough to allow you to go and be creative and do what you do. Mm-hmm. Because a lot yeah. of the time, it can be very, very easy for recruiters, no matter what position that you're in or what, um, what environment that you work in, to go for the person who looks the same, who acts the same, who thinks the same, because it's easy mm-hmm. to control. They're easy to manage that way, right? Because we talk about mm-hmm. creative people sometimes being these sort of um, outliers in many ways. They're eccentric mm-hmm. and they're hard to control. Yes. That, that's the perceived myth around a creative yes. person that you'll get quite often. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. his book, Rebel Ideas, Matthew Syed proposes, or at least tells a story first and foremost of, of the feelings of the CIA in 9-11. And the idea mm. that the CIA majority of the time were what he describes as mostly pale, male, and from Yale. Whereas if somebody with a more diverse understanding of, of religion or even from a diverse educational standpoint had been in there at that time in 9-11, they may have picked up on the cues of the videos of Bin Laden in the cave. Mm. Because to, mm-hmm. quote, to quote one of the top CIA agents, how can a man in the cave out-communicate the world's leading communication society? Whereas <laughs> yeah. if, one, if one person had been in that group who had little inkling of understanding of, of what they're actually seeing in front of them, someone who in their religion was trying to perceive themselves as a prophet, as someone that, mm. that, that, that others should follow, and they're a leader, then they might have picked up on it. And obviously the, the travesty might have not happened, but... There's this idea that it's very easy to pick the same people in the same mold because they'll do the job however it needs to be done and no questions will be asked. But you need some kind of, you said, you need some kind of ability to allow them to be creative. So that must be difficult to manage in many ways. The danger with working in American club soccer is you become an administrator um, versus, you know, your masterpiece to be on the field. And in the end, you become very, very good at scheduling. You become excellent at communicating. 
because you have to. Um, you, you're providing a service to parents that are paying, you know, a lot of money. For example, this we have a staff member called um, Jared, a um, very close friend of mine, and now as well. And I remember I took a game and he was watching, and our goalkeeper had tried to build out from the back and given it away, and they had scored. I think it was it might have been the last couple of minutes, and um, and then I've shouted over intentionally in order for Jared to see and hear. Brilliant. Do that again next time. However, next time, could you could you just move your feet a bit quicker? But well done. I really love the fact that you tried it. Now, I think hopefully from that, he's seen that despite the result, I wasn't interested. I was interested in, in the child getting better and continuing to be creative because it would have been really, really easy, Gary, for that child to put his foot through the ball, you know, draw the game or win the game, whatever it may have been at the time. You know, but I made a point to him you know, of saying, of made a point so he could see that it, that wasn't important. And I think when you when you do that and you show that there's a trust built. It's oh okay, well that's they said they were going to do that and and they've done it. So oh okay, I'll buy into that process. So it is it almost is manipulating a situation almost sometimes in order for staff to buy into it, which is really really important. And I think what's really important is you stick to what you believe. Um, it's not as I've used the word fluffy a few times, but I think that's really, really important because I think people will see through it quickly. As soon as you deviate from that and it doesn't become about the individual, um, it comes about the team and it, and it's, it doesn't become about um, the care and it doesn't care come about, you know, um, the, the creativity that you've been kind of beating the drum for, then you then you'll lose people. Um, I think that's when you will lose people. So, no, that's been the process. Um, and as I said, w- there will be mistakes along the way and, and it's not no one's fault. It's, it's, it's the way you view life and the way you view things sometimes. And, you know, I think from what I've experienced with staff that have stayed um, is they're very well read. Um, you know, they're ambiguous and they, um, you know, they, they want to get better. And they're, they're, they're critical and they're reflectors. And also they, they don't coach for themselves. Um, they coach for the child. They don't coach for themselves. They coach for the child. I think that's a mm-hmm. fantastic way to end the podcast. We could talk Brilliant. so much in so much detail and so much more depth about so many other areas of it. But uh, just as I'd expected, it's been proper insightful. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. And Thanks, who knows? Yeah. In the future, we might, you know, we could hook up again and and um, and do another one. But yes. thank you so much for jumping mm-hmm. on, and uh, we will speak to you shortly. Thanks, Gary. Catch up soon. Cheers. Wow. I don't know about you, but I could just feel the passion and motivation that Joe has for promoting creativity in his players, staff and his life choices. There's so many take-home messages from this episode. It could easily have lasted another hour. Thank you for listening. It would be great if you could share the pod with friends, family or work colleagues so together we could help others have the confidence to share their stories. I'd love to get some feedback from this episode and the previous two. And if you'd so wish, you can leave a review on our Facebook page, Think Curiously Podcast. And why not stay connected by subscribing to the pod on Spotify? Thank you and have a great weekend.